0: This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and informal conversations with some amazing people. And we are live. And I first off, have to thank a good friend of mine, Brett Allen, who had Carol Baskin on his show recently. And he said, Eric, you've got to have Carol on. She's phenomenal. She'll fit in with your show. You have such a variety of guests. I know you'll love her. Definitely reach out. So thank you, Brett, for helping uh, me put together the connection and setting this up. So to start off with Carol Baskin, how are you today?
1: Well, I'm great. And I want to thank Brett as well for introducing me to you and to your viewers.
0: Okay. Now I do a little bit of research and this is pretty easy to find, but apparently I'm one day off. Well, uh, happy birthday. Well, thank you. Yeah. I just turned 60. Well, also, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I guess you just don't care anymore. It's was like, yeah, oh, whatever.
1: <laughs> hey, after having hitmen chase me around, it was like, yeah, 60 looking real good.
0: Yeah. Good point. Good point. Wow. And you know, I I did do some research. Um, Honestly, I watched Tiger King like a year ago. So I'm not deep into that. And I want to talk about some of that. But I make it a point in my show to try to find things that other people haven't talked to my guests about to make it more interesting for everybody involved. And I was looking at your feed and I saw one video as I was scrolling that was differently named than the other videos. And I was like, real estate? What? And that was really, really interesting. So I was wondering if we could talk just a little bit about your experience in real estate. You were talking about buying and selling, it sounded like distressed properties and different things.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, that was really, uh, really exciting to me. I love the thrill of the chase. And so I had gotten involved with um, investing in real estate back in 1984. And it came at a time when Don was not my husband at the time, but he was my lover and he was at the bank and he overheard a couple of bankers talking about a delinquent mortgage that they had. And they said, you know, I would sell this $20,000 mortgage for 2000 bucks just to write it off our books. And not knowing anything about what that meant, he knew there was a real big difference between 2000 and $20,000. So he said, "Well, I might be interested in looking at that. Could I take the the information home and read it over?" Well, Don couldn't read above about a first grade level, So he brought it to me and he said, "This just sounds too good to be true. Could you read it and let me know what the catch is?" And so I read through it, and it was like, "You know, here's these people. They owe the bank twenty thousand dollars. They're not making their payments." The bank doesn't want to be the bad guy and foreclose on them, but they don't want to let them just get away with not paying their debt either. So they're in this really difficult position in order to clear it off their books that they're willing to take a discount. So we agreed to buy it. And first thing that we did was we went back to the people that owed the money and we said, look, you were owed. You had you owed. And now I said 20,000. I'm thinking it might have been 40,000. But anyway, Um you owed a whole lot more than what we paid for. it, (laughs) And so we can afford to take lower payments if you want to start making payments to us. And there's no bad blood between us and them at this point, like there may have been with the bank and, you know, having collection calls and all of those kinds of things. And they refused to do it. And so we ended up having to foreclose the mortgage. But when you go to a foreclosure sale, On the courthouse steps, and it really is like physically on the courthouse steps until recently when they started doing it online. But you go to the courthouse steps, and whatever the total of the mortgage is that is owed is what somebody has to pay me as the owner of that mortgage, regardless of what I paid for it.
0: And so one second, but like if it gets by me, I'll forget completely about it. You mentioned the courthouse steps and online. Did that change the whole parameter of it? Because I could figure that you might be able to snipe a property easier just because people are too lazy to actually get out and go and and stand on the courthouse steps versus you know i can sit here uh, wearing shorts which of course i'm fully dressed right now with you know very formally now you got
1: me wondering <laughs>
0: <laughs> and 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 just sniping things you know in a, a lazier fashion i'm just i just wanted to ask that real quickly before you kept going
1: Well, it probably is true that it's a lot. Well, it's definitely true that it's a lot easier to buy sitting at my desk than having to go down to the courthouse steps. I hated that part. But the real research is in finding out whether or not the property is worth what it's owed. So like there was a property that I went out and looked at everything as far as the amount that was owed, what the bank was willing to take for it, all of that looked absolutely perfect. And I thought this is great. I mean, I don't If I have to go inside a house to make a decision on whether or not it's worth it, it's too close to marginal. (laughs) I have to be able to drive by and go, yeah, that is definitely worth it. And this one time when I saw it, I was like, gosh, that just looks like such a good deal. But I had some time on my hands. So I walked up to the house and I opened the front door and the entire inside of that house had fallen into a sinkhole. (laughs) You could not see that from the street. So you really do need to go and check these out before you go and buy them.
0: Do You um, sometimes just go by the fact that, OK, this is so undervalued that if I hit it with a wrecking ball, just that plot of land is worth more than I'm paying. Right. And especially do you ever have the opportunity to get adjacent plots of land and, and build out something? Because I'm guessing if you can do that and rework the zoning, you might be able to build like an apartment complex or something.
1: I don't do multifamily stuff, but that would be possible. And I have put together parcels before and I've divided parcels. So maybe buying a 10 acre parcel and selling off an acre here or an acre there so that you have different buyers that have different reasons for
0: wanting them. Um, All of those are possible. Awesome. Now is this, I guess (laughs) um, I'm, I'm doing this at night, you know, on YouTube and I have a day job. You're running a sanctuary, but is real estate your day job? Yeah, real estate's been my day job since
1: 1984. So, I once we did that first deal, it was like, oh my gosh, there's some money to be made in this. And so, I decided to contact every single bank that I could find in a five county area back in the 80s before anybody was doing things called flipping houses. Nobody was doing that back then. Mm-hmm. And I would go to the bank and I'd say, do you have anybody who's not paying their mortgage? And they'd look at me like I'm out of my mind. And I'm like, I'd really like to buy that. They called it bad paper. I'd really like to buy that bad paper. And, you know, they just they they resisted it so much. In fact, in the early years, because I was a woman, I would go into these places and just be laughed right back out of the bank. And so I created a business card and I called it. My name was Carol Stairs at the time. So I called it C. Yes, the right. initial C Stairs. Investments. And I told them that I worked for Mr. Stairs and I was just the secretary gathering this information. I could get all kinds of information by doing that. And he did Remington Steel. Pardon? You did a
0: Remington (laughs) steal? Or you didn't hire your counterpart.
1: (laughs) Yes. It it was so effective that at the time when Don and I did get married in 1991, everybody that met him called him Mr. Stairs because they assumed he had been the money behind me all of those years which I thought was absolutely hilarious. But um, I forgot what I was even talking about now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, I went to five different counties and all of the banks that I could find in those counties and started buying up all of their bad paper. And then that led me to find something that I didn't know about, which was, you know, while you're at the courthouse steps, On so many of these different deals, then there would be like another set of hearings on the courthouse steps. And I'm like, well, what are those people bidding on over there? And so I found out that it's called tax deed properties. So like every year when you pay your your property taxes on your property, some people don't pay their property taxes. And so the county has to operate on tax money so what they do is if you don't pay your taxes they'll sell your tax bill to somebody else and that person bids against other people as to how little interest they will take as their return on it for paying your taxes that year and after they own it for like i forget three years five years then they can call it up for a tax deed sale which means all of the taxes owed against that property then have to be paid off at an auction that happens on the courthouse steps where all of these bidders like me would come in and bid on the property. And so I would easily look at 20 or more properties every single day in order to buy maybe one in a week or in two or three weeks. But And these were across five counties. So I spent a lot of time driving around looking at property to the point where even today when I drive around someplace, it's like, I've never been on this road before. This is amazing. I've never seen this neighborhood. So um, that's what I've done since 1984 is build that real estate business. And then when I lost my husband in 97, a lot of that business ended up being completely decimated during the conservatorship that took place after that. And during that period of time, taking care of the cats was at that time over half a million dollars a year. And now it's like between three and a half and $4 million a year but I didn't have any way of raising that money during the conservatorship. So that's when I had to open the nonprofit and start soliciting for donations and having people help me support the cats. But since then I've been able to build the real estate business back up. So it's still my main job is the real estate, even though nobody knows me for that. They only know me for the sanctuary work.
0: and Okay. That, that leads me to the crazy thing. And um, you've, wound up in the middle of being a walking meme in a lot of ways. I I know that's a, it, it's a crazy thing but you know I'm I'm kind of fascinated with celebrity and not in the sense of oh wow that's celebrity more of the mindset and how to, how it feels to interact with people from the other side. Now I in my little YouTube universe They have memes made of me and local, you know, on locals and I have and stuff. And I, I I kind of am tickled by it. I'm like, oh, wow, I made it. Somebody spent a little bit of time making something of me. That's awesome. But the amount of recognition you have to have, is that difficult for you when you're traveling? I mean, are, are you able to walk around anonymously at all or are you pretty much always recognized?
1: Yeah, I'm surprised how frequently people do recognize me because I think probably any any movie star or celebrity could walk right past me and I would never even put two and two together that that was the same person that I had seen on TV because – if I see somebody like even seeing my own volunteers when they're not here wearing their volunteer shirt, I see them in the grocery store. I don't recognize them. <laughs> it's like they're completely out of context for me. So then I don't I have that know who too. they
0: are. Oh, you're Subway person. If you're at Home Depot, you're not. You, I don't know you. Yeah, it, it's really weird.
1: And so, I mean, to answer your question, I think there's a huge difference between what I've experienced in that kind of Uh, celebrity or recognition versus what a celebrity experiences. A celebrity is usually somebody who has done a really good job at being a performer or an actor or actress, or they've done something really noteworthy that they, in most cases, I think, are looking for that kind of attention and they want people to know who they are and to recognize them and to want to come up and have their pictures made or have a autograph with them or whatever. And Mm -hmm. in my case, it was, it was, it was the result of a situation where people were trying to kill me. So every time somebody comes running up at me, I don't know if they are somebody that wants a selfie or if they are somebody that has been hired by one of these people who's still out on the street that hates me and wants me dead. So I've always had kind of that ambivalence to anybody coming up on me. Plus, it happened during COVID when you don't want anybody getting near you, so it's like a really
0: bad which time. may be a benefit. I mean, technically, that is sort of a benefit because anybody who's getting within six feet anyway is already a problem. It's like, yes. well, wait a minute, this is abnormal, so it would cause a wave issue. Did you have anybody come at you directly in public? I mean, again, I watched this a while ago, and I don't remember. Did you ever, you know? Were you physically threatened at any point You know, where you saw the perpetrator?
1: Uh, not from the two people that Joe Exotic hired that people knew about in Tiger King, not from Alan Clover or the FBI agent, of course he, he never attacked me. That'd but there had been several people before that that had called me from starting in 2015 saying that Joe had offered to pay them to kill me and they felt like I should know. And so I would let law enforcement know. And I have been physically attacked, not by anybody that Joe hired, but by other people that are animal exploiters and animal abusers that would very much like to silence me. And so I've been attacked, in fact, by one guy twice, verbally attacked. I couldn't even tell you how many times. And so that's just been, you know, that's been what my life is like for the last 20 years, because whenever I see animal abuse or big cat abuse, I speak out against it. And there's some people who really don't want me to do that and want to shut me up any way they can.
0: Do you have to have security with you when you go around? A lot of
1: times, yeah. Um, Most notably, if I go to a Florida Wildlife Commission hearing, Mm -hmm. they are always for the stakeholders. Well, the stakeholders are the people who are killing animals, the hunters, or people who are abusing animals like the circus owners or the people that are breeding the cubs for cup petting. So it's <laughs> the entire industry of stakeholders are coming there to protect their right to abuse animals any way they want. And then there's usually me and maybe one other person who shows up and says, this isn't right. We shouldn't treat animals this way. And that one other person happened to be a woman who was my age, same like long blonde hair, And poor thing was always being uh, mistaken for me. And she took an awful lot of grief until people would realize that it wasn't me. But uh, bravo to her to keep coming and showing up. And there was a time when we would, you know, I'd always try to get people to come and speak out against this kind of abuse, but nobody wants to be threatened and bullied. And They would, you know, follow me, try to follow me home. I'd have to go to the sheriff's office and have them follow me so that I didn't have these people coming to my house. And so if they saw that the sheriff was escorting me, that they'd leave me alone. And nobody wanted to go through that. But I got enough people one day to show up for one of those hearings where we actually outnumbered all of the animal abusers in the room. And it was like the biggest win ever at that point to finally have more people who cared about the animals in the audience than those who were there to hurt them. So I'm seeing that change a lot and there's so many more people that'll show up now, but Sometimes I have to hire a bodyguard to go to those, or if they're away from my home and I have to stay in a hotel near there, then I have the guys following me back to my hotel room from those kind of things. And I'll have to have law enforcement or have a off duty cop or somebody with me.
0: Wow. That, that can't be too fun. Now this does lead into a little bit. And I, I was planning to ask this, but I always like to take chat questions because I like the audience to, you know, jump into, um, did you have any idea how Netflix is going to paint you? when they um, recorded all the footage. And and before we go deep into that, um, how did that come about? So
1: we worked with them for five years and we worked with any kind of film crew that came out here. We would invite them in. We were happy to talk about the issues and what they could uh, learn about how these animals were being abused and There's so many lies that people in that industry tell. They'll say that they do it for conservation and we would show them how none of this is serving any kind of conservation value. All of these animals that they're breeding are inbred or crossbred and can't serve any kind of conservation value. And the fact that none of these animals can ever be set free, it's not legal. And so, you know, telling them all of the stuff they needed to know when they were trying to do these fluff pieces on come pet the cute little cub stories, And so we worked with them, the producers of Tiger King. We were also working at the same time with the producers from Hidden Tiger, the producers from the Conservation Game. There was one other one we were working on during that time. And then as people recently found out, we were working with the people that were doing The Walking Dead. So sometimes it wasn't issue related. It was just that they wanted to come out and see how does a tiger move and how do they swipe their paws and things like that for some kind of CGI Um, Mm. experience which we're all for we want we want all of those performing animals to be computers not real animals so you know we had no reason to suspect that anybody was ever going to do anything vicious like what they did and no reason to feel like we had to protect ourselves or you know really care about what the release forms were that we were signing we're like yeah we're happy to provide this So, you know, when they would ask questions about my husband, that wasn't a surprise, because if you think about it, the people who are abusing big cats don't have any kind of justification for that. So they can't talk about the issues. The only thing they can do is try to divert the attention away to something else. And they have, for all of these years, used the tragedy in my family to say, did you know that she killed her husband and fed him to the tigers? And now they have forgotten all about protecting animals.
0: They're just like, Oh my gosh, that's such an exciting story. Tell me more. And then chat actually, but um, that might've come up in the chat actually, but, um, chat actually, but I, I know you're probably a thousand ways. I don't really know what exactly, what did happen? I'm, I'm curious. Can you talk about it at all? What happened? With my husband. Yeah, yeah. Because I I hear there's all kinds of theories out there. And I'm just wondering, uh, what are some of them and why are they wrong? Does that make sense? (laughs) There's so many that
1: are wrong. And I actually created a webpage at bigcatrescue.org slash Netflix that addresses them. So, you know, I mean, the very first one right off the bat is I married a millionaire and stole his money. No, he wasn't a millionaire. I made him a millionaire. He could barely read or write. (laughs) I was the person that was out there. Researching all of these deals and putting together the deals with the banks and then foreclosing on them or doing tenant evictions, renting them out to new tenants or selling them to new buyers. My husband would come along and look at the properties with me sometimes. He would come to the auctions. He liked to come and bid. So, you know, they might be seeing him do stuff like that, but he wasn't doing any of the major work that you have to do to build that kind of a business. But all of those kinds of things are on that page, and I think the biggest um, the biggest misconception that people had from watching Tiger King was the notion that <sighs> there's <were> so many. <laughs> um, I yeah, I understand. I mean. <laughs> even though the producers of Tiger King said or allowed me to say what was true, which was that my husband was suffering from dementia, what they would do is they'd have me say he was suffering from dementia. I was taking him to doctors and then they'd line up five or six of these animal abusers or people who had attacked our, our real estate business for financial gain and would have them say, Oh no, he was perfectly fine. Well, You know, why didn't they interview the doctors that said that he was bipolar? And why didn't they have the MRIs from St. Joseph's Hospital where we took him in because of the issues that he had? Why didn't they point out that that was all happening at the same time as this restraining order that everybody loves to get so excited about? And yet, if you even look at the language in the restraining order, he's talking about the fact that I was throwing away all of the junk that he would drag home from dumpsters and from yard sales and everything whenever he was in Costa Rica. And the judge didn't approve the the, um, restraining order. And Don continued to spend the night next to me. If you really think that your wife is gonna kill you, do you just go down and try to get a restraining order? And if they don't give it to you, you just go home and act like everything's normal? No. (laughs) You call your attorney and you get a divorce if you think the woman's trying to kill you. That's not what happened because that wasn't what was happening in our life. He just didn't want me thrown away his junk, and you know the whole thing about him gathering all of this junk. And Have
0: you released any of the documents that they ignored? I'm I'm just curious, you know, to kind of counter it. You know, some of the medical records you talked about. I know there's HIPAA laws, so I don't know. Oh, I put them did. online.
1: I mean. I put them online at that page that I told you about. I gave them copies. I told them where to find all of these things that were online. I would send them like the docket from the conservatorship that showed the timeline of his daughters and I coming to an agreement. And, you know, they talked about saying that the um, will and power of attorney had been forged. And that was crazy. I had three different firms, different handwriting expert firms, look at all of the original documents and all of the original source documents, things like his driver's license and the marriage certificate, things that I could not possibly have forged to, you know, show a match. And they all said exactly the same thing. These are definitely Don's signatures. And yet after Tiger King, they had these armchair detectives sit there and look at something on TV and go, yeah, that's, that's definitely a forgery. That looks way too much like his signature to be his signature. It was like, it looked like his signature because it was his signature. So it's just been bizarre to me that people are so determined to not look foolish for believing what they saw in Tiger King, that they will just keep on and keep on despite all of the evidence to the contrary.
0: And in, in fairness, looking at it, um, a friend of mine, Chase Hughes, he actually wrote the uh, book Ellipsis Behavior. Um Somehow I talking? heard him he talk um ellipsis behavior is the ellipsis? name of the book. Ellipsis, like uh you know, dot 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 on the end of it. But oh. he um he gets into a lot of things like hypnosis, body language, brainwashing, and things like that. But he was talking about Bernays, who wrote about propaganda and shaping public opinion. And he did a great job pointing out that Tiger King technically was propaganda. If you if you look at the, the way things were laid out. And I thought about it, like, yeah, I could see that. And the six steps are, you know, create a small window of a doubt or uncertainty. Step two, develop doubt through targeted questions. Step three, introduce questions that enhance confirmation bias. Step four, display information that displays the bias on occasion. Five, reward the s- subject for having come up with conclusion or figured it out. And six, expose the subject to a negative event in order to solidify the bias.
1: And so wow, things, that's amazing. I, mean, I should read that book.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the book, um, oh, God, uh, it's Edward Bernays. It was written in like 1929, 1930. So I mean, it goes all the way back. I mean, very, very, very stuff. And I forgot the name of this, it. like, shaping public opinion. Let me see if I have an... Oh, crystallized public opinion is the name of the uh, original book. <laughs> but, and that's why I kind of wanted to just talk to you. I was doing my research. I remembered seeing it. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to research any of this. I just am going to ask. And, you know, hopefully you can describe what was going on and things like that. And I really, really appreciate it. Like what exactly happened during that time? I I mean, I don't understand the details. All I know is that he disappeared on a weekend. He was going to fly to Costa Rica or something. What, what happened?
1: Yeah, I don't know how that ever got started, that he was going to fly to Costa Rica. He had been trying to, he he owned a lot of airplanes, and he had been trying to buy some ultralights. And he had been trying to outfit some of these planes with extra fuel tanks so that he could make an extended flight. But to my knowledge, he had never actually perfected that. I mean, the one time I saw what he had done, I was like, you're going to die from the fumes in here. (laughs) This is not going to work. But, um, you know, I saw some of his attempts, but it wasn't, and uh, I don't know who got it started. It was after Tiger King that this whole thing got started that he was going to fly to Costa Rica and that's how he crashed over the Gulf. I don't think that was the case at all. I do think he crashed over the Gulf, but I don't think it was because he was trying to fly to Costa Rica. I, was, I, I don't even think he would go in that direction. i would have to look at a map, but, um, I really think what happened was that he did crash a small ultralight or experimental plane into the Gulf. And the reason I believe that, because at the time I had a lot of theories because there were a lot of crazy things going on that I found out that he was involved in. But after Mm -hmm. all of those didn't pan out to have been, or that I could determine had been any kind of a uh, factor, the only thing left is here's his van at the airport early in the morning, he doesn't have a pilot's license. So the only time he could fly in and out of an airport was when they were closed. And so for him to go and he had left the house early that morning, it was on a Monday morning, not weekend, but on August the 18th of 1997, he left out early. I was dog dead tired from the night before. And usually I would make sure there was somebody with him, or somebody that could keep an eye on him because he was just doing such crazy stuff. And this particular morning, I just, I laid my head back down on the pillow and then I woke up hours later and he was already gone and we didn't find his van until it was like two days later at the airport. And the guy at the airport said, yeah, it was there really early. He had come in at like, I forget five or six o'clock in the morning and it was already there. And I knew Don was looking to purchase ultralights. He had even, I had a 1961 Cardinal at the time, and he was asking if I would trade it for an ultralight. (laughs) I was absolutely not going to fly in anything that looked like it was made out of popsicle sticks and told him so. But if he had found somebody willing to sell him a plane that met him at the airport that morning, and he Mm -hmm. decided he wanted to buy that plane, then it would seem natural that he would fly that person back to wherever they came from. And since there didn't seem to be anybody else who had just up and disappeared that day, I'd have to assume that person managed to get back home. And then if Don turns around and comes back home and crashes out over the Gulf, that would explain why there was never any wreckage found and why we never saw or heard from him again. There were some people who said they saw him again after that, but those never panned out.
0: Were there any sales that you know of at the time? I, I don't know if planes have to be registered or is an ultralight a small craft that they don't register it? I'm, I'm curious. Right. If, you know, If you build them in I,
1: your backyard. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so it wouldn't have had any kind of, like a regular plane would have had some sort of, you know, it would have had a transponder in it, which was another thing because he was flying illegally and he knew it, he had to fly under 200 feet. I don't know if you've ever flown a plane over the ground at 200 feet, but it's like screaming (laughs) along the ground at 200 feet. I mean, everything seems to be going really, really fast. Whereas if you're at 30,000 feet, it seems like you're moving ridiculously slow, even though you're going, what, 600 miles an hour there? Sure. But at 200 feet, there's also um, and stop me if I'm telling you something you already know, but there's updrafts and downdrafts. So you've got Uh, clouds that are sending down drafts and then you have the heat hitting the planet and it's hitting different things like uh, highways or trees or buildings and as it hits that differently it's causes all of this turbulence. That's why they fly so high, is to get out of the turbulence. But if you're having to stay at 200 feet, you're getting caught in all of that, and it's a really, really rocky ride. So as soon as Don would ever get into his plane, the first thing that he did was fly straight out to the gulf and then fly fly at the uh, above the gulf at 200 feet so that he was under radar, and yet it's a, a flat mm-hmm. surface. So it's, it's much more stable out there over the water. And We would fly together that way frequently up and down the coast going up into the rest of the United States. He would go out into the Gulf and then up there. So if you bought this plane in Alabama or Georgia or wherever, northern Florida, and then was flying back, that would make sense that we've just never found the wreckage from it. So I'm hoping one day a hurricane will blow that in and it'll put all of this to rest. But in the meanwhile, I don't have any way to prove I didn't have anything to do with it. Although the police have said, you know, there's absolutely no evidence that there was even a crime. And yet because of Tiger
0: King. Oh yeah. I was going to say, are you working with them now on that? Because I, I imagine, you know, with all the publicity and things like you'd be on their case too, saying, Hey, have you found anything? What's going on? I did that in
1: the day, you know, 23 years ago. And that was another thing that really annoyed me was after Tiger King, the new sheriff says, Oh, she's been uncooperative. And I'm like, what do you mean? Uncooperative. I have so many faxes and I kept them. They were faxes where it shows, you know, who was faxed to and who <laughs> people that remember faxes. They were, you know, like stamped like that. I had so-, I <laughs> so many faxes back and forth with the detectives for years going over every possible detail that we could think of with them. And how the new sheriff could say there was no correspondence between me and them is just ridiculous. There was a ton of it back then. As far as doing anything now, you know, after Tiger King came out, the sheriff just seemed so caught up in the limelight of it and was so excited about the idea of being in a, he seemed from what I could see, so excited about the idea of being in a Tiger King too. And then, saying these things that weren't true, saying things like he was he he knew for sure that the documents were forged, and it's like no, he has copies of all of those reports that were done by all of those expert handwriting firms who told him that those were don's signatures, so no there that was not true, so I have no reason to talk to any of them if that's going to be their attitude
0: no fair enough i did, I didn't know um. If they were laying down on the job. Like I said, I'm a little out of touch on it. So how it, did you- at the time? At the time they were really spending a
1: lot of time and resources. They came out to the sanctuary. I don't even know how many times I had offered to pay for them to go and research in Costa Rica. They said they couldn't take my money because it would be like giving better service to somebody that could afford good service versus people who couldn't. And so I said, well, there's a hundred thousand dollar reward. So if you find out anything, then you could claim the reward. And that way I'm not paying you. And then finally they did go down there on their own dime and researched it down there, but uh, they wouldn't take any money from me to do it.
0: Have you been to Costa Rica? I I never learned that. What, What is that like? It's beautiful. Oh, I love
1: Costa Rica. Absolutely love it. Um, Don and I had talked about moving down there in the early years of him investing there. And I was all keen to do it because it's such a beautiful place. But there were a couple of problems. One is food. (laughs) At that time, we had 200 big cats and we were feeding something like 500 pounds of raw meat a day. There is not a source for 500 pounds of food for a big cat in Costa Rica anywhere the people there can hardly afford any kind of meat or um, beef or chicken. So for us to find that kind of a source for our cats was not happening. And I couldn't find a veterinarian there and my vet wasn't willing to move there that had big cat experience. So those were two things that made it impossible for us to move the sanctuary there. And I know Tiger King and all of the aftermath was saying, oh, he was planning on moving the sanctuary there and they were gonna divorce and he was gonna take cats. And it's like, no, he wasn't. He had the same problems I had. There's no food and there's no vet, so there was no way that that was what he was planning to do, but people wanted to buy into that narrative that there was a divorce brewing, and there wasn't
0: what, what, what were your plans at the time? You're, you're in his plans because I, I don't know other than you know what happened after, but were you guys working together to build a sanctuary, a uh, bigger one, different places? what What were your plans?
1: We had looked at different locations because at that time we were on 40 acres and I had actually bought a real estate deal. that was 600 acres. that was about an hour north of us. And so we were talking about moving the cats out there. But Don was at this point by, by about 1996 is when I noticed that he was starting to get really strange. And he was always strange, but I loved that about him because he was just so charismatic and um, such a daredevil. But by the time by about ninety six or so was when I started thinking there's just something wrong with him, and he could you know he'd remember things from his childhood with great detail, but he couldn't remember where he had been for the last hour. Even though you know it's not like he was trying to hide where he was, he was there at the sanctuary. But if I would come out and say where have you been, he's like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where I've been. And he would get lost. And so one of the things that he spent so much of his time doing was, and this was before he had dementia, um, but through that period of time as well, he would go from from store to store to the dumpsters behind them. And he would pull his car up, jump into the dumpster and see if there was anything in there that he thought was of value. So everybody knew not to eat anything that Don brought them because it was going to be something he found in the dumpster. And he would just fill the van with all kinds of crap. And then, I'm sorry about this. I got,
0: because the no text coming in. Um, I'm actually not hearing it, so. Pardon? Uh, I'm, I'm not hearing texts. no, so. Oh,
1: good. <laughs> So he'd bring home all of this junk and that was why whenever he was in Costa Rica one week of the month, I was hauling that crap out of here as fast as I could because the county was citing us for being an illegal dump site and it was truly just garbage. So while he was in Costa Rica, I'd be loading it all up into dumpsters and hauling it off. And that was why when he found out I was doing that, he had gone down and filed a restraining order and in the restraining order said, she's hauling off all my good shit. (laughs) so, like that was what that restraining order was about. It wasn't anything about him being in any danger. And so just because of the fact that he was acting so strange and I was trying to figure out what was going on and I didn't know what this was. One of my volunteers came to me and he said, wow, I just, I can't believe you're handling this real estate business and you're running this sanctuary and you've got a husband with Alzheimer's and I didn't know what that was, but he had a brother that had Alzheimer's. And he's like, oh, yeah, Don is everything that my brother is with this disease. So that's when I started trying. And that was in like night, late 96, or early 97. I started trying to get Don to see a specialist. And so we went through a number of false starts. Um, Don said it was because Ann didn't, it, the secretary, didn't want him to go to the Alzheimer's specialist, that she wanted him to go to her doctor. She says now afterwards she didn't have any part of this, so who knows whether he was telling me the truth or not. But at any rate, it took me a number of different doctor visits and different diagnoses, and then taking him in to get that MRI in June of 97, not getting the results back from that. I didn't get the bipolar diagnosis from the doctor. I found that in his effects afterwards when we were searching for clues as to what had happened to him, that's when I found that he had been hiding that from me, which meant he wasn't getting any treatment for being bipolar, which explains a lot. If you think about somebody just being totally, manic and feeling like nothing can kill him. And then being so depressed and crying. And I started to say he'd be in these dumpsters. And he'd call me because he'd get down stuck in one where he didn't have enough junk to get back out of it and couldn't pull himself out. And so he always carried a cell phone with him. And he'd call me and say, I'm in a dumpster and I can't get out. And he'd be crying. And I'd be like, well, Where are you? And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember where I drove. And so I'd spent hours driving all around town to all of his favorite dumpsters to try and find him and haul him out of those dumpsters. And so this was the craziness that was going on in June and July and August while I was trying to get him into this um, Alzheimer's specialist appointment. Were you able? To it
0: was the end of August. Were you able to take his keys away or anything? <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, how was he doing? Hey, that's some scary things. I mean, to drive like that. I couldn't take his car keys away from him. I
1: could usually get one of the people who worked with him. Uh, Kenny was somebody who had been with us since he was a kid. And he would keep an eye on Don and stay with him throughout the day and just go everywhere with him and do everything. So, There were a lot of times I didn't have to worry about Don because I thought he was with Kenny or because he was with Kenny. Um, Sometimes he would ditch Kenny and he'd end up on his own. And that's how he'd end up in dumpsters. But we had a huge problem at the sanctuary because he was running around and opening the cages and letting the cats out. And he would go in and play with them. And then he'd just walk away and leave the door standing open. And I'd see some leopard wandering through the yard. And I'm like, oh, my God. It was all hands on deck to try and capture the cat and get it back into the cage. So what I did was I changed the locks on the cages. And then I gazed on this humongous ring of keys that had, like, keys to everything that never that we never had anymore, like keys to houses, keys to old cars, keys to anything, so that when he'd go up to the cage, he'd be sitting there trying one key at a time until somebody would notice what he was doing and divert his attention to something else for five minutes, and he'd forget all about wanting to go in the cage. So I did have to take away his cat keys, but I couldn't take away his car keys. And he still continued to go to Costa Rica because because he could. (laughs) And, you know, I... Looking back on that, I should have had him Baker acted. I just didn't think that we were this close to something that bad happening.
0: Did, I sometimes wonder in cases like this, did he know? I mean, did he deep down know, hey, something's very, very wrong?
1: He actually asked me one time, and this came as a result of him telling me something one time about a friend of his. And it was a friend who had gone through the exact same thing. He had really just lost his mind and he was making horrible decisions. He was losing his business and people were just robbing Don left and right. I mean, because I I caught the one guy, uh, Wendell Williams who was in Tiger King who kept saying how Don was, you know, perfectly fine, but I actually, and I think they even said this in Tiger King, but, um, or let me say it, but, uh, he had, his name was Wendell. He came up to Don and he said, You remember that $2,000 that you owe me? And Don was like, Oh, yeah. And so he peels off $2,000. He always had huge wads of cash because, you know, to him, that was how he showed that he was important and successful. And so only a few minutes later, Wendell didn't see me, but I was within earshot. And I hear Wendell say, Don, you remember that $2,000 you owe me? And Don was like, Oh, I forgot. And he starts peeling off the money again. And I was like, Oh, hell no, this is not happening. And then, of course, Wendell's like, well, I didn't say that five minutes ago, and Don didn't remember it from five minutes ago. And so I had all of that going on with all of these people that were trying to steal from him. So at any rate, when this happened with a friend of Don's, he said, boy, if anything ever like that happens to me, I need you to take take, uh, control and make sure that we don't lose everything. And so I had been telling him when I'm trying to get him to see the doctors, you know, look, here's the history of what's been going on with you. And he couldn't remember that it was happening and he didn't believe it. And he had all these people telling him, she's just trying to take your money. She's trying to put you away. And he believed it because he was in such a uh, reduced mental capacity state. And yet at one time during that same June, July period, he did say that he felt like there was something just so wrong that he just wasn't able to do the things that he used to do and remember the things that he used to remember. And I think he was seeing it even in the little things that he was doing. Like he liked to mess around with engines and he loved to play mechanic. And now he was forgetting how to do those kinds of things and couldn't make things work. And so he recognized that there was something wrong. But the problem was... Even yeah, once he recognized it, he couldn't remember it later that he had recognized it. And I'm sorry about these pings. They're just
0: Don't worry I know no, no, that's no worries. He um A reason why I asked him, I I know it it might sound really hard, but yeah, he wouldn't want to hurt himself or anything, would he? At that point.
1: He was going through such um highs and lows that when he was low, I mean, he was just, he was so upset and would just be weeping when he would find himself lost and not knowing where he was or what he was doing. And I don't know what, I don't know how deeply he could feel that in addition to what I could see of that, but I just don't think that he would have been somebody who would have committed suicide. Okay. Well, he would live right on the knife edge, <laughs> but he wouldn't just like say, "Okay, I'm going to go into." He would just reckless. Nothing just, can kill me, and I'm going to live forever doing whatever crazy thing I want to
0: do. Okay. Well, I mean, so just be reckless. Reckless, not necessarily. Okay. Well, yeah, that's kind of a relief, I guess, in of itself, because that that'd be sort of. I mean, well, it would be really awful to consider. And if Um, I felt
1: like he was in that kind of danger, then I would have had him Baker acted. It's just, I felt like he was just, he was just crazier than he had been. And I felt like I had the time to get him to that appointment in late August. And, you know, you're talking a difference of what, maybe a week between the time that I lost him and the time that he had that appointment set up. And so I just didn't think that we were at that critical of a moment yet. And I've kicked myself every day since then,
0: my mother had Parkinson's, and what and kind of an offshoot of dementia, and uh, I'm trying to think the, she almost became I hate to say mean, but she sort of became mean. I don't know the best you know the way to put it, but I don't know. there's sort of like an immaturity factor I feel that comes about did you see any of that? Like, you know, maybe um, he might've been a little more aggressive with some things or, 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 or different um, reactions or stronger than were appropriate.
1: Yeah. And I talk about this in the diary blogs that I put out because it was all of the uh, oh. times that I had actually recorded the things that he would say and do like, I remember one night he came home, he liked to go to the auto auctions. And a lot of times he wouldn't be home until midnight after the auto auction. And he comes home from the auto auction one night with a homeless guy that he wants to have in our bedroom. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I don't even want this guy in our house, much less in our bedroom. And he just... Yeah, He went so ballistic and angry over the fact that I didn't want to have this stranger sleeping in the same room with us that he banished me to sleeping in the bathroom by myself, you you know, with a locked door between me and them. And so there were things that he was doing and saying that were extraordinarily hateful. But like you said, it was like the hatefulness of a three-year-old throwing a tantrum kind of a thing not like an adult trying to be abusive or cruel. And so I just, I couldn't hold those those times against him because I felt like there was just something wrong here, that it it wasn't him. It was whatever was happening to him.
0: Very not. And I'm really sorry you've been through that. I mean, how did you find out about it? Um, you know, did the police come and say, hey, um, well, I guess, I guess they wouldn't know. How, how did... How did you find out he was gone? What happened? Was anybody with you?
1: He he left out of the house early on Monday morning, August the 18th. And I went to work like usual when I did wake up. And I just assumed that, you know, he was out there doing whatever he was doing, yard sailing or whatever. And then when I got home from the courthouse, I'd gone down there to file an eviction or foreclosure or something. And when I got back from the courthouse, our secretary Ann McQueen was calling and she was on the phone with Kenny and um, asking Kenny if she knew where, if he knew where Don was and uh, said that he didn't.
0: Who's Ann again? I'm sorry.
1: She was our secretary. Okay. So like it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she had been my best friend for 17 years at that point. So um Kenny said that he wasn't there and so she asked him to put me on the phone and I said I just walked in the door I don't know where he is we're on 40 acres I can go look around but if Kenny says he's not here he's probably not here and she was just all in a panic over this and I was like "What the heck you know he's been gone for what five six hours maybe at the most and you're just losing your mind over this and she said that he hadn't called her over the weekend and I don't know why he didn't call her, but apparently she was really taking issue with that. And so I didn't think anything of it until that night. And then that night, I think, was also the um, Bay, Bayside Auto. I think it was Bayside Auto or maybe Tampa Machinery. It was one of the auctions that he usually goes to. And so I thought, well, maybe that's where he is and why he didn't come home yet. And then about midnight or so, it was like, all right, well, he should be here by now. And so I started going around to all of his old haunts looking for him. Couldn't find him. And then the next day, that was when Ann was um, saying that we should call the police. And I'm like, he hasn't even been gone 24 hours. And they're going to think I'm crazy. But I went ahead and called the police and said, my husband, did can come home. And then I guess that generated them putting out his tag and stuff with the sheriff's offices or police offices or however they network that whenever somebody's missing and then his van was found a couple of days later at the airport. And so that was when I found out where the van was.
0: Okay. So you didn't have to go in and do a police yeah. report and all that stuff or anything like that? They came out and did a police report at the sanctuary when I said that um, he had been gone. Okay. So, they, so the police were decent about it? They didn't say you were crazy for doing it too early or any of that?
1: Well, you know, I got the typical, does he have any girlfriends? It was like, you have no idea how many girlfriends he has. <laughs>
0: Okay. I had no idea how many girlfriends he
1: had. I thought he had one girlfriend. Uh, his wife had said in Tiger King he had 24, and I was one of the 24. So apparently he had a whole lot more going on than I knew about at the time. Oh,
0: oh no! Thanks. That makes me think of the other guy on Tiger King, uh, Doc, whatever his nose is.
1: <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a pattern there, doesn't there, with people that have big cats and lots of lovers?
0: Yeah. I, sorry, I'm seeing parallels here. I can't help myself. Yeah. Um, Well, to get on that happy note, I do want to finish out talking about um, how to care for them, because I personally don't like the whole zoo idea. Uh, It really bothers me. And maybe I'm influenced, but I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And one of the things I'm very proud of in that area is the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it kind of established a whole new way That many places do quote zoos, and it is like a very spacious habitat without, you know, no bars, anything like that. You know, you have them living in the wild like they'd be living. It's just, you know, a a larger area, and you're on very constrained trails. You're not allowed to, you know, touch, see any, you know, you can kind of look at them. And what's cool about it is the animals rule everything. So if the animal is, off napping, well, you just don't get to see them tough. and I was wondering what your thoughts were with that type of habitat out there
1: are are they only native animals that they have out there
0: yes in 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 Arizona, that's another unique thing is that everything is native to the Sonora desert that area. so yes, it's a hundred percent you know in line with how they live.
1: The one thing people don't know about most zoos, and I don't know if this is the case there, but in almost every big accredited zoo at night, they put the cats away because at night is when cats are the most active. That's when they're awake. That's when they would be hunting and leaping and doing all that kind of stuff. And when they would be most likely to escape from a cage. And it's also the time when people have the cover of darkness to come into a zoo and get into stupid trouble by jumping into a cage with a tiger in it, trying to get a selfie or whatever the heck they're trying to do. And so, as a result, the cats end up being locked up in what they call night houses. So, anytime the zoo is not open to the public, the cats are locked up in these windowless jail cells that are typically, I don't know, Um, at the most, like Florida has the the rule for the biggest ones of these, these cages, which is like 16 feet by 20 feet for two adult tigers to be locked up in. And Disney animal kingdom. Um, I was thinking actually Lowry park zoo, but all of them, I mean, their night houses are usually whatever the minimum standard is. And in Florida, it's 16 by 24 or 16 by 20, um, for two cats, they don't even have a standard for one cat. And for like a bobcat, which is what you would have in the Sonoran Desert, the cage size for Florida is four feet by six feet, which is just ridiculously small. So I don't know, you know, if other states are even worse, what size of a night house that would be. It'd be like being locked in a pet taxi for the most part. And a bobcat can travel 16 miles in a single night just wandering around. So you're locking them up during the most active period of their lives because it's a liability to not do it. And the public would be appalled if they knew that about zoos, but they don't And unless you have been part of the zoo community and you get to see the night houses and you talk to the keepers and you know how these animals are treated. You might think they actually get to live in those beautiful enclosures all the time and they don't. And so um, I just don't see any benefit in keeping wild cats in cages when the whole idea of doing that is to educate people about conservation and about protecting these animals. It hasn't worked in the 200 years that we've had zoos saying that we've lost 95% of those cats in the wild during that period of time. So it's not going to work either. (laughs) We got to have a new way of saving these animals. And we have to do that by generating symbiotic relationships between those animals and the people where they live in the wild so that the people there benefit from coexisting with them rather than killing them and it's not until we do that that we're going to save the planet
0: isn't it harder though with cats and let's say because what pops in my head is bison and they've had remarkably great luck with bison you know they've restored the numbers to incredible degrees but having a bison running around out wild isn't the same as having a tiger running around out wild. <laughs> yeah. The bison can be dangerous and yes, they can really mess up a vehicle and can be aggressive if you go mess with their you know, children, but in general, they won't eat you alive. And even with their playing with you, just like take an arm off. Um, So that, that makes it more difficult. I'm curious what you can do. And because there's so many cats, out there, so many tigers, all that. I I don't know the numbers I think you've talked about. As you're finding them, are they at least being sterilized? So if importing can be banned or stopped in some way, eventually as the ones who cannot be rescued die off, this whole problem can maybe die off. Does that make sense?
1: Well, the cats that are in captivity are not coming from the wild. They were actually born and bred in cages in almost every case. And so all of these cats who, any cat, any big cat, anywhere in the world, if it's born in a cage, it is doomed to die in a cage. There is no release program for a captive born big cat back to the wild because of the things that you mentioned. Plus the fact that that mother cat usually has to raise them for two or three years, sometimes five years to teach them how to stay away from people and pick a mate and do all the things they got to know how to do. And That's not happening in zoos. They're taking them away from their mothers and using them as pay to play props for people to have their pictures made with or to see them up close. And so they're not getting any of that training. But um, as far as what you're talking about, as far as the cats who are currently in captivity, when our federal bill passes, which I fully expect will be this year, that bans cub petting and phases out private ownership, then I think within the next five to 10 years, this problem in the U.S. will die out. The way that the private ownership ban is implemented is that people who have those cats can keep them, but they have to register them with the government, which currently isn't even required. So we don't even know how many big cats there are. But once they register with the government, then they can't buy or breed more, which means they would have to sterilize them and keep that from happening.
0: So, I mean, well, I feel I still feel awful for all the cats that are in captivity. That's horrible. But I think you've pointed out Um, just now and before that you can't let them out. If you let them in the wild between tearing everything else up, they'll die themselves because they just can't, they don't know how to handle it. So it's kind of like waiting it out.
1: And Um, the biggest problem with that is if you, if you um, turn a tiger loose in an area and it's been habituated to people and it's not afraid of people, it's going to go for the easy prey, which are their cattle or their children And then the people who go out to kill that tiger, they're going to kill the first tiger they see. It may not be that tiger. It may be 10 other tigers that were minding their business doing what they should have been doing. But now, because you've put that one tiger out there, you've put everybody in peril.
0: So now to take care of the um, ones that are there and work yourself out of a job, are you looking at opening more facilities to help accommodate them? Because I think you've got laws passed saying that you can't cross state lines. So are you like, you know, for example, Texas comes to mind. I think Texas and Florida have more, more wild animals in it, or they're not, they are supposed to be wild animals in captivity is the best way I can think of putting it. So when I say wild animals, I mean, people who are keeping the animals captive, they shouldn't. Are you looking at building and having facilities in in both states to maybe take care of the big mass?
1: It's really not necessary. There are about 40 sanctuaries in the United States that are accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries that do rescue big cats. Some of them do other animals too. um, But there uh, are at least 40 places that are really good. They don't buy, breed, sell, allow public contact, or take the animals off site for exhibit, like to fairs or malls or whatever. Um, So that's part of what it takes to be an accredited sanctuary is to not do any of those things to the animals. And there are enough spaces in those existing facilities that I think would handle all of the animals who would be dumped during this period of time when people can't can't make a profit off of them anymore. I don't think that it's necessary for Big Cat Rescue to rescue any more cats. We would if there was a need, but I just don't think there is because I think there's enough cage space in other facilities. And we have been the only sanctuary that has been willing and able to dedicate almost all of our attention to actually ending the problem at its root. And so that's the best use of our time is to get these laws passed. And then the next big challenge is going to be even when you have good laws, getting law enforcement to enforce them is a challenge. And so it means constantly nipping at their heels and saying, look, these people, like I just found out that this one lady, she lost her license in 2012, which means she can't exhibit the tigers that she has anymore. And in Tiger King, if you remember the scene where Joe at the end is saying, I've got these cubs and I've got to make sure they get to a good home. Like he's saving these two cubs and leaving behind the 160 other big cats that he had. For some reason, they're focusing on him being so loving because he's taking care of these two tiger cubs, which I'm pretty sure he just sold to her. But I didn't think much about it at the time. And then just recently was thinking, why was he selling tiger cubs if he was? to Lori Enson out in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And so I put a drone in the air and sure enough, even though she lost her license in 2012, she's still giving tours and still operating just like she was before a regular zoo, got people coming in, paying to be there. She calls them volunteers now, but it's like, when you come to volunteer, do you bring all your, you know, your kids in the baby stroller and you're taking videos and everything? That's not volunteering. That's, that's taking a tour. That's breaking the law. And yet, Law enforcement's done nothing about it since 2012. So it's going to take a lot of biting at their heels and saying, look, you've got to enforce these laws that you do have.
0: Wow, oh, amazing. Now, I know we're at an hour and that's all I had booked. Um, that Would you mind taking questions from the chat for a few minutes? I've sure. been very abusive with the time and didn't let them have any questions other than a couple. So I feel really badly about that. Um, Let me see if we have any. uh, Okay. Um, Okay. If an animal is released, it usually has a collared identified. I don't know if that's a question. So everybody uh, asks a few questions here so I can get it. Um, I know Viva said he had at least one question. So I'm waiting for that to come in. You see, I tell the chat go ahead and ask your questions and i'm not seeing any uh, questions in there um you were um actually while i'm waiting for questions to come in you were telling me before the show and i definitely wanted to plug it um bigcatact.com what is that
1: so one of the things that we have discovered is that it's really hard for people to understand why breeding cats big cats in captivity is causing their extinction because the simple mind thinks if we need more cats in the wild, then we need to breed more cats. And they don't understand all of the ramifications of that. So the cats in the wild do need to be able to breed and have a safe place to raise their offspring. And that is conservation. All of this breeding in cages is mostly for people to have their picture made with a cup. And even though those people will always say things like, you know, this was for conservation breeding and the mother just abandoned it and you've got to help by bottle feeding this baby, they're just taking your money away from you because you were dumb enough to pay to have your picture made with a cub. And once that cub is about 12 weeks old, between about 12 and 16 weeks, they can take a finger off a child. So now they have just gone from being a, a very profitable product to a huge liability. And it costs us like $10,000 per year, per tiger or per lion, just in food and vet care, not any of the overhead of the sanctuary. And those cats in in captivity, they'll be like four or five years before they're fully grown. So you're talking about $50,000 you would have invested in that cat before you could kill it for its pelt and its teeth and its bones and all of the things that make it very valuable on the black market. So when you've got, and we estimated in 2011, that there were about 200 cubs being bred, just tiger cubs being bred and used as photo props every year. And those 200 cubs were not showing up in sanctuaries at the end of their period of time. And Sanctuaries like ours, we don't allow people to dump cubs on us every year and just keep breeding cubs. That's just enabling the problem. So we require that they never have another cub again if we take a cat from them. But um, if they're breeding 200 cubs every year and they're ending up disappearing into this legal trade as pets or as ego props or um, as backyard breeders, then that is creating a legal smokescreen for the illegal activity of poaching the cats in the wild. And it's going to be a lot cheaper to go out and shoot a tiger in the wild than to raise one for five years to get to the big enough size that you can take all their parts away from them. So it puts huge pressure on wild populations which are in serious danger of extinction if we don't get rid of the legal smokescreen that's covering that. And that's and another part of that is that on the global stage, when we tell China, you shouldn't be breeding these cats like cattle and then starving them to death for their bones and their skins and their um,
0: teeth. Well, we're hypocritical.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because they say you don't even know where your tigers are. At least we have them on sanctioned tiger farms here. And in the U.S., you can't even count how many you have. So we have no no. Um, credibility on the global stage until we clean up our own mess. So at bigcatact.com, what we are asking people to do is to either send an email or a tweet or call their member of Congress. And we give them a little thing that they can say so they can either write it or they can uh, say it to just say, please ask your boss to co-sponsor the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And that bill will ban the cub petting, which stops all of that breeding and discarding of cats. It ends that legal smokescreen. And then it phases out the private owners by saying you can keep your big cat if you want to, but you just can't buy or breed anymore. And that will eventually phase out this entire problem.
0: Awesome. And um, that perfect question, I'm starting to get them into the chat. Um, Are animal laws much better in Canada, UK, Australia, et cetera?
1: They are much better in the UK. They banned all of this crap back in the 70s. That's why they don't have the problems that we have now. Canada is kind of a mixed bag. You have different provinces there. Some are better than others, but they are starting to try and ban it. A lot of uh, county municipalities there are banning it because they're seeing the way these animals are treated. As far as Australia, they don't have any native big cats there. They have a couple of these parks where people will go to see people playing with cubs and, Whenever people see that kind of behavior, then they want to go out and do that kind of behavior. So I, I think that they are they are part of the problem there. South Africa was one of the biggest places as far as breeding cubs, telling people who would pay thousands of dollars to come there and rescue cubs so that they could feed these orphans, as they were called. Um, they would make money off of the cubs. And then as they got to be young adults, they would have these walk with the lions experiences where you feel like you're walking with an adult cat, but mentally it's still a kitten. And then once they got big enough, five years old or so, they would be shot in cages by hunters who do cant hunts. So the animals were exploited and abused at every level along the way. The Minister of Environment in South Africa just recently came out saying, enough, we are not going to be doing this to our tourism industry and having this huge black cloud over us. So hopefully she will put an end to that.
0: Okay. Um, On a lighter note, how many cardboard boxes do they go through? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of cardboard.
1: (laughs) We have a two story building out here. It was a, like a four unit quadruplex for interns. And now that entire building is dedicated to just making stuff for the cats to tear up.
0: Okay, because I I think it's so funny seeing a tiger in a refrigerator box the same way as you see a house cat in a shoe box. (laughs) You see, yeah, okay, they're both cats. Uh, Obviously, they're different, but it's still kind of charming in its own giant, um, destructive way.
1: They do have so many of the same uh, things, you know, like laser pointers and catnip and all of that kind of stuff.
0: That is so awesome. How, how much um, was the monthly food bill um, on average?
1: I tell you, I know at our peak, we were feeding like 500 pounds a day and this is all um, really good meat. The bulk of their diet is the entire animal ground up. It's at a USDA inspected facility. We don't feed roadkill. We don't feed Walmart's throwaway meat when it expires, like all of these other places. And so you know, the price of beef and chicken, it's ridiculously high. But then twice a week, our cats get whole rabbits and whole prey items, whole rats. That stuff is like, I think like three, $4 a pound. It's really ridiculously high, but it's the whole animal. And they need that. They need the roughage and they enjoy playing with it. It arrives frozen. It's not like they're torturing animals, but um, they just love having it in that package that they can sling around
0: well, they're cats. They would torture if it was alive. I mean, that's a reality, and sadly. Yeah. Um, next question. This is I know the person who's asking it and it's definitely not meant to be a troll or anything, but how do you feel or deal with the fact that so many people are accusing you of a crime walking around? I mean, that, that has to be hard. Well,
1: nobody does it in person. The only people who do that are people who can hide behind a keyboard or hide behind a burner phone. Um, and there's plenty of those. But it would be like me accusing you of that. If I were saying that you were a murderer, you'd be like, no, I'm not. That doesn't affect me that you say that about me because that's not who I am. So that's how I take it. But if you can think about somebody saying that about somebody you love, like about your mother or your daughter or your significant other, then you feel like when it's an attack on them, like you have to protect them. And so I think this has been way harder on my family than it's been
0: on me. Yeah. Do you have daughters? Do they work with you in your business?
1: I have I have a daughter and I have a stepdaughter. Um, The stepdaughter actually hasn't lived with me since she was probably about eight years old, but we're still in contact with each other and have a good relationship with each other. And then my daughter has been doing this work with the cats since she was 12 years old. And she works here every day and is in charge of our rehab work. And she makes sure that the sanctuary runs. That's how I'm able to run a real estate business and do all of the other stuff that I do in the advocacy world is because she's making sure that everything here at the sanctuary, it's happening like it should.
0: That's cool. Now, um, Eva, she has a question and it's a good one too, about your Netflix fame. And I always like, kind of looking into things and saying, is it a net positive or net negative? Because obviously nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. Do you think that it's a net positive because it brought attention to your cause, even though it's running your life down in a way?
1: I think, again, that that question is different as to who you're asking. If you're asking me or if you're asking my family. For my family, this has been just gut-wrenching for them. And they would say that there was no way they would ever have trusted these people or had anything to do with them if they thought that they were going to do this. But I really believe that everything happens exactly as it should. And even when things are horrible and you think, God, there's just no way there's a good side of this, I really believe that there is. And I believe if I just sit back and watch it long enough, I'll see that happen. And so right now, I think I'm seeing that happen. I'm seeing our federal bill move faster than it's ever moved before. In December, it passed with a two-thirds vote in the House. It just didn't get to the Senate in time, so we had to start all over again. But the good news is we're further along than we ever were before at this time of the year. So I really think it will pass and that that will be the the shining (laughs) silver lining of Tiger King. And the reason I think that it's having that effect is because before, nobody believed me when I said there's this huge problem with all these tigers in horrible situations and their cubs are being abused and people are like, eh, you're just crazy. And now they've seen, oh, my God, there are a lot of people really being miserable to these animals. And there are a bunch of tigers running loose in Texas all of a sudden. So it's like, yeah, they, they believe it.
0: I guess so. Um, Kay wants to know, what, what are your thoughts on the current real estate market?
1: I don't know what to think of the current real estate market. I've been telling everybody for like the past year, don't invest. This thing is about to crash. It is going to come screeching to a halt. Prices are going to be lower than ever before. Nothing can withstand all of the money that we're printing and giving away right now. This whole economy is about to crash. Do not buy right now. And things just keep going up. And I just, I don't, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how there is so much money being spent on real estate and construction and things are costing twice as much as they ever cost before to fix a property up. So I, I'm <laughs> I'm totally baffled by this current situation.
0: Wow. Uh, so what are you doing to uh, I go in and-
1: cycles. So whenever the market crashes, that's when I buy. I buy as much as I possibly can when prices are ridiculously low. And then I just ride out that next usually eight to 10 year cycle and prices will go up. And as they go up, I'll start selling stuff off and gathering cash so that after that next crash, I've got cash to to go out and buy. So I'm in the position right now where I'm stockpiling cash expecting to have a feeding frenzy when this whole thing crashes again because it always happens it's just i thought it would have happened within the past year i just never dreamed it would be still doing what it's doing
0: god that sounds scary um i have a super chat i thank you very much Uh, ripperjack media who is jamie lewis i won't even
1: speak to that guy he is such a troll
0: Okay. okay um somebody you've dealt with online or something or
1: he has made a career out of trying to trash me after Tiger King and just riding on the popularity of people hating on me that I think he has found that's his sweet spot is to just keep hating on me any way he possibly can
0: Wow, okay well find <laughs> a non uh, uh abrasive question uh when you're doing, um, do you do live streams yourself? Yes. Um,
1: I, I used to do a lot of them for Facebook and I would go out for about an hour and do a Facebook live with the cats. And then here in recent months, I've been so busy. I haven't been able to do that, but I'm really looking forward to things slowing down, which they seem to be right now and doing more of that.
0: How do you deal with the um, chat? Well, I'm just saying there's some people who are upset with you in the chat. I can just tell you right now. How how do you deal with that or cope with that? It's been a
1: real challenge because right after Tiger King, there was a lot of that. But as people have gotten better educated and have looked at some of the resources online and have done some research on their own, they have found that they really were duped in Tiger King. And so it's been a real challenge to and this is something I've asked all of the people that help me in the chat, because whenever I go live, we have about 200 people that are answering questions and um, engaging with people and trying to make sure that they're fully educating them on all of these issues. And some of the big issues that we have is like, you know, why don't you breed them and why can't you turn them loose? And so those are things that people really do have legitimate questions about that we want to be able to educate them. But they they tend to come in as you're probably saying all hot and hateful. <laughs> and <they> just, <laughs> oh my gosh! Not
0: everybody's a fan. I, I can tell you, not everybody is a fan. Um, but- so it's just a matter of trying to be patient with
1: them and answer their questions. And in some cases, you know, like with this guy that was just on here, there's nothing that anybody is ever going to say to them. That's going to change their mind because they have a vested interest in keeping up the narrative that was, that
0: was, um, made them
1: popular. And so why would they ever want to say that they were fooled?
0: Well, and you've been really, really generous with your time and open and thank you so much. I I know some of the questions probably are intrusive and I apologize for that. You know, somebody is, I'm just going to like, I kind of want to know, you know, what's going on, but I I really don't want you to feel attacked or anything like, I thank you so much. You've been really, really, really gracious. And well, thank you, Eric. love to have you back sometime. Happy to do that. And for now, everybody go to bigcatact.com. Whether you're happy or not happy, take care of the cats for God's sake.
1: And it's something we can all agree on that the cats were the real losers in Tiger King and we need to save them.
0: Yeah, I think so. That really, really bothers me. But thank you so much thanks so much for listening and if you would like even more content and community please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com and you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything i do at erichundley.com see you next time